0: Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on TV. Terms and restrictions apply.
1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show, my name is Ryan Bailey and on today's show we are answering your questions. Joining me today is a man who is steadfastly refusing to buy a Dodge, a Jeep, a Ram, a Fiat, a Maserati or any other kind of car owned by that company,
2: protesting the Agnelli family, Taylor Rockwell. Hello! I didn't know that that was a thing that they owned, but yeah, sure, I will not buy any of those things. Uh, that was in my plans to buy all of them today, but I'll back off that one and be a little bit more conservative.
1: You're just being coy about it because I know you had the order in for the Maserati, and you <laughs> had to pull it when uh, you realized that the Agnelli family were uh, uh, very much behind this Super League. You don't you, you don't have to play coy here, Taylor.
2: Can you can you run through that list again? They own what?
1: They own Fiat Chrysler. So the Agnelli family, who own Juventus, also own Fiat Chrysler, which is why Jeep is on the Juventus shirts. So it's Dodge, Jeep, Ram, Fiat... Maserati, I'm probably missing some as well.
2: But isn't Daimler involved in there? I don't understand how these things work. Daimler Corporations are confusingly
1: too big. Um, that's a different group, I believe.
2: All right. Yeah. All right. But what do
1: I know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I do know that I recently rented a Dodge Journey, and it was the worst car I've ever driven in my life. Joining Taylor and I is a man who is very popular with that coveted 16 to 24-year-old demographic because he's not that far outside of it, Graham Rudman.
3: Ryan, why do you have to remind me that I'm going to be 30 in September and I will officially be old at that point? That, that 16 to 24 demographic, it's getting further and further away. And now yeah. it's
1: sad. That census box is so far away in your rear view now to come back to cars, Graham. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, but I think I have to bring it up because both Taylor and I are in our late 30s and it feels good to... Um, mid. To- mid. 30s. Mid. Thank when does, you. When does mid last until? <laughs> Answer me that. Know, I'm
2: th- I'm 36, man. That's mid, right?
1: Uh, okay, I'm 37.
2: Where does that land? You old old man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, which means you're the, cra- you're the crafty veteran, Ryan. That's all that means.
3: So what, what you're saying is you guys are you find it easier to watch a 90 minute soccer match than than I? <laughs> yeah. After about 60 minutes,
2: I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> It was weird. As soon as I hit 30, it was just like, yeah, 90 minutes uninterrupted. Let's do this. (laughs) I I think Florentino Perez has a point. (laughs) I think, yeah,
1: now at this age I can watch a full 90 minutes. I make a noise when I stand up like a... "Mm." Uh, which oh, yeah. is, like, mandatory whenever I do it. And I can't watch a TikTok, and which is probably uh, <laughs> something that you could do, Graham,
2: because uh, that, <laughs> that's your thing, evidently. Uh, I think yeah. it's even weirder that Graham not only uh, has a TikTok account, but also an OnlyFans account, which you wouldn't really expect, <laughs> but that just shows you just how young he is.
1: Yeah.
2: It's on sale
3: right now, by the way. I recommend
2: it. It's, it's, yeah, it's a good it's,
3: show. Just, it's just me and all my uh, soccer jerseys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm oh, I'm about thirty through. I've I've got hundred of them, so there's plenty more content to come.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make a very lewd comment uh, based on that last word you used, Graham. But let's move on to the European Super League. Uh, well, we're going to talk listen to questions, of course, in this episode. But um, we wanted to touch a little bit on the European Super League, that being the dominant uh, topic of conversation in this sport we love. It is a moving story. We've had a few more things develop this morning as we record on this very Thursday. We've seen fan protests at Carrington, and Manchester United's um, Manchester United's training ground. Three or four people showing up with bed sheets. With spray paint on them, which must really spook the owners, I imagine. Uh, Alexander Seferin, the president of UEFA, has said that the clubs involved in the failed attempt uh, to establish a breakaway European Super League will suffer the consequences. I want to get onto that later because not so sure about that. Um, Edward Wood, <laughs> meanwhile, he resigned, of course, as Man United's executive vice chairman because and um, this is according to a post from Sky Sports. He resigned because he couldn't support the owners' plans to join the Super League. That's what Sky Sports News has learned. The former J.P. Morgan employee, Edward Wood, could not support the uh, plans to join the Super League, so he resigned (laughs) after it had uh, all all gone down. So uh, just a a little fact I'll put out there uh, apropos of nothing. Neil Ashton, the former Sun journalist and Sky Sports presenter, is PR advisor for Manchester United. I just thought I'd mention that. No reason whatsoever. Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention, and maybe I'll get your opinion on this, Graham. Uh, A new British Super League has been floating around this morning. The idea thereof. Uh, Celtic and Rangers... Being involved in an 18 team Premier League because they want to make less money what is what's the logic here Graham
3: oh this one again this one again (laughs) I'm so sick of this and it's very predictable that this would come up and at at this time that Celtic and Rangers would go down to to England to play Uh, there's all a lot of Scottish football fans have been talking about it today Uh, we've all been sitting back and uh, enjoying the rest of world football ripping itself to, sh- to shreds and now it's on our doorstep we're all uh, a little bit worried but I don't think it'll ever happen it will it will I don't think it'll ever happen
1: so I'm well not that worried. it would surely be pretty detrimental uh to uh Scottish soccer Graham and also I don't see how it would increase the revenues all due respect to Celtic and Rangers it's not like a it's not like playing Real Madrid every week do you know what I mean
3: Yes, but the but the TV revenue from a Premier League deal would surely be much greater than what their share of the the Sky Sports BT pie would be smaller than the the pasty they get in Scottish football at the moment. <laughs> <laughs>
2: do you think it, I know it's so? I know it's very much not going to happen. But like in a thought experiment of if they decided like yeah we're going to send them both down, they're going to compete in the Premier League. Graham, do you think that they would have to? Give them special dispensation, or like just give them a lot of money to spend, similar to what promoted teams get, but maybe even more. Because if you're going to have them come down to play in the Premier League, no disrespect to either of them, but I think the relative yeah, lack of strength of the Scottish <laughs> League, yeah, they'd be relegated pretty quickly. So how would that? How do you think that could work if it were to happen one day? Um, possibly.
3: I, I, I just don't see how they put them into the, the Premier League directly. I think the, mm-hmm. the only chance. That they have of moving to England as if they join the English pyramid at, at, at the bottom, I guess. Um, and even then, Yikes. what's, what's the, what is the bottom of the English pyramid? Are we talking like national league or are we, are we talking the, the bottom of the EFL? And then if they're going to the bottom of the EFL, what are the national league clubs thinking? And yeah, that's, that's the only way I think, I guess you could expand the EFL. And I think there was a proposal actually from the EFL a couple of years ago, which was the most solid proposal there's, there's ever been. And that felt half feasible. But are Celtic and Rangers going to accept? I mean, these are Celtic Rangers are, in, in two years' time, Scotland's going to have two Champions League spots. So they're, they're going to be Champions League clubs. Are they going to accept playing in League Two with the hope that they're going to f- fight their way up? I mean, clubs like Nottingham Forest and Leeds were stuck down in the Championship for so long. There's no guarantee that Celtic Rangers would get out of the Championship and then all of a sudden they're just stuck there forever. So I, I just don't think it's a it's a gore in and. and any way shape or form i think that the only proposal that's been mentioned over the years is some form of um secondary champions league like they call it the atlantic league it keeps getting talked about so it'd be like clubs from basically all the clubs that were ignored by the super league so it'd be the not so super league um that that's been talked about for a long time and and actually uefa seem to be actually quite uh, open to that idea, I guess because it shows they're not fully favouring the top dogs all the time. Ooh. But I still don't think that'll happen Is that to gonna be either. a
1: Burnley versus Brighton in Shanghai every couple of weeks. (laughs) Yeah, a real money spinner. (laughs) I love it. I love it. That sounds perfectly sensible. Um, My my view on the Celtic and Rangers joining the English system, we let the Welsh in. Why not let the Scots in? That's what I say. (laughs) But I think it would be bad and uh, detrimental for Scottish soccer, of course. Um, We're talking about European Super League, and and Taylor and Snaves had a very good discussion yesterday on the pod, which I recommend you guys listening to. Um, I I I just want to say Tuesday, when all this went down, when, when this European Super League fell apart... That was one of the most enjoyable online experiences I've had, watching that unfold. One of my best days on Twitter, I would say. Um, and I, I'm working on the movie of the whole thing, by the way. It's called How to Lose a League in Two Days. Um, Matthew <laughs> McConaughey is attached to Star. He's going to be leaning against uh, Agnelli on the poster. It's going to be the rom-com for our times, I would suggest. <laughs> um, and maybe we'll get some... If you want to get some extra laughs in, we'll involve Tottenham in it somehow, because they've had quite a week where not just uh, some shoddy results on the field, but fine, fighting with a paint company who was sponsoring them. For uh, firing their manager and uh, hokey-cokeying their way in and out of the ESL, very amusing stuff. Now, um, one one thing on a slightly more serious note, I wanted to bring up, guys, about this European Super League and how it may rear its ugly head once again. It feels inevitable that it will, and we know that UEFA aren't a paragon of virtue, and that we shouldn't be falling back and saying, "Oh, we won, we won," because we ne- we hadn't really won in this situation. I'm going to put out a prediction that a new european super league comes around maybe in a few years it might take a few years but basically it'll be a carbon copy of the uefa champions league competition we have now but maybe those 15 or around 15 teams get to stay in as heritage teams that's not a million miles from what is being suggested for the current revamp of the champions league but i think they're going to come and do it anyway just so they can nudge uefa out of the way that's my theory is what's going to happen. They still, yes, yes. they may be getting more of what they want from the Champions League, but they still want that power and control, these clubs, and they still want the right to print a little more money than they're currently printing. Does that sound, Taylor, like something that might happen down the road to you?
2: Honestly, uh, maybe this is me being like idealistic, but kind of no, because I think the, the big issue with the the Super League, in my mind, is just that they wanted to regulate themselves, they wanted to be in charge of it themselves, they didn't really want the oversight of UEFA the way they have with, say, the Champions League. And I think if you are a smaller club and it's a battle between individual teams and the like, like the governing body of your sport, you're probably going to side with the governing body because you kind of want to keep things unified. You want to keep in their good graces. And I think as long as they're going up against UEFA and FIFA, that's going to be a pretty big hurdle for them to have to navigate. I think you're right, though, that that is what it's all about, is they want guarantees that they're going to continue to print money and be in the top-flight mm-hmm. competition. And I think they'll try to find a way to make that happen. I think you're right that we're going to get some version of this at some point. I just think UEFA have to be involved. But again, maybe I'm being naive.
1: Yeah, Graham, any thoughts on that and what happens with, in, in the coming months and years with this situation? I don't think it's going to go away. I don't think Mr. Agnelli is going to um, pop back into his corner. We're not going to hear from him again.
3: Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be I mean from given what Florentino Perez was saying last night. I mean, how how long did he speak for, by the way? He <laughs> he's <laughs> there still going there's still He's not going to, he's to not gonna stop. for about 3-4 hours of quotes from Florentino Perez and that was after he'd spoken for a similar amount of time on the Monday night as well. Um and Agnelli's obviously been still been saying things and they haven't really accepted that it's totally dead yet. So yeah, I get that I get the sense that they are going to try something, but to be honest, I feel like UEFA have been I've actually been emboldened by this this whole situation. I think they're stronger than they have been for a number of years, and I really want I don't think they'll do this, but I really want them to use that new strength to basically go back on the changes they've just ratified through and say, you know, those those heritage places that we were going to offer, yeah, actually, we're getting rid of those. Um, and what are you going to do about it? Because clearly you, you couldn't do anything about your Super League. And, and I, I just think um, I really want this to be a turning point in the other direction now. I think they overplayed their hand. I think the question on Monday was, was this a bluff? And it's become clear that it wasn't a bluff. This this was real. They they expected to get this through, and they've overplayed their hand. And I want this to be a, a turning point in the other direction, where they have pushed it too far with fans. Fans have had enough, and I want legislation. I'm I'm kind of talking about in the, in the British sense where Boris Johnson has spoken about um, changing laws and and bringing in legislation. Well, I want that legislation to bring in fan representation on boards as compulsory on every in every club in the country. I want fan representation on the boards. And then all of a sudden, those clubs don't become that attractive anymore to these billionaires who can't actually do what they want with them. The Super League, um, as anyone who's involved in in you know Wall Street or investment, the, the promise or the prospect of something is actually sometimes more valuable than the reality. So this Super League has been inflating the value of these clubs for so long, and now that prospect is gone, that I think some of these owners might think this might be time to, to cash out, and this would be a good opportunity to reshape football in much the same way that Germany did with the the ownership of their clubs so I I actually see an opportunity the other direction I'm feeling much more positive about things now than I was on Monday when things were pretty bleak
2: Graham that's really that's a really interesting idea because I think where I keep getting stuck is that I I, I do hope this brings change I do think I do hope that maybe some teams decide you know what this isn't for us anymore we're going to sell on but my fear is always that if the Glazers are selling Man United they're going to want literally billions for it and I think only a sovereign wealth fund is going to be able to afford that but you're right that if you do have sort of restrictions in place that require you to have to listen to fans maybe that brings down the asking price because maybe there's less interest in having this thing that you now own and you can do whatever you want with it if you have to work with other people that weren't there before maybe that does make some people less inclined to buy clubs.
1: I think um, one interesting aspect as well, gents, is the idea of punishment, which um, Seferin mentioned uh, today about saying that these clubs won't effectively won't go unpunished. But I wonder what the nature of that will be. Um, and there's some people saying like, even this new format is almost a reward for the uh, sedition that these clubs have tried to try to put on and then if you look at you know the, the, la- the in, in, in the English system the, the bans and the point deductions that have been given to teams for um, you yeah. know financial troubles and you know Leeds getting fined a few hundred grand for trying to watch another team train what does it mean if you try to subvert the entire system of the league surely that's a little bit more strict than uh, Bielsa flying a drone over someone's training ground <laughs> um, but you know in, in terms of I'm, I'm bigger picture you know some people are asking let's give them a one or two year ban from europe that'll learn them and there is precedent for teams being banned from europe obviously in the 80s for five years all english teams were banned from europe because of the high disaster which if, if if listeners aren't aware there was um the 1985 european cup final um between liverpool and juventus there was a group there's some groups of liverpool fans who broke uh, broke through a wall and, and 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 ran through and um charged at juventus fans there were 14 Liverpool fans who are found guilty of uh, involuntary manslaughter. Uh, a very, very uh, sad, a tragic affair, which resulted in all English clubs being banned from UEFA competition for five years. My club included, by the way, Wimbledon, who won the FA Cup in 88, did not get to uh, go into European competition because of that. So there is precedent for uh, um, teams being banned for very different reasons. But I think it would be very difficult for UEFA to do that because let's say they ban these 12 teams. Um then they've got a competition without those 12 teams in it. And it kind of, you know, <laughs> that doesn't work very well for them either, does it, Graham?
3: No, I'm, I'm undecided what I think about banning from European competition. I can see arguments on both sides. I'm, I've never been in favour, to be honest, of, of points deductions. Um, I wouldn't be in favour of point deductions in this case because I think who who are you punishing in that respect? I mean, it's not even as if the players and the managers deserve punishment. You know, if, if you if you give a point deduction to Liverpool, does Klopp and his players deserve that after they mm. were one of the ones, particularly Jordan Henderson and 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 the players were were key in in getting this overturned the European Super League? Do they deserve punishment? I think one of the best, and and I actually think this is this has already happened. Um, one of the best solutions I saw was the, the banishment of representation from the involved clubs on Premier League committees and mm. boards. So I think five, um, every club had a representation on some of the committees, with the exception of Spurs, who Daniel Levy isn't on any of the committees anyway. They've, I think it's either going to happen or it's been proposed or it's already happened. They've all been banished from those committees. So all of a sudden now you have... On really important issues in the Premier League, you have the 14 other clubs making the decisions, that and the uh, the six big clubs are not being consulted on those decisions at all. That to me feels like quite an apt punishment because this was all about control, and all of a sudden they've now had that control curbed in, in the Premier League.
2: Uh,
1: Taylor, what what are your what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, I'm, 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 I think what I, what I hesitate on there is just that, like I think it was the, the bigger clubs, those six bigger clubs, in fact, who wanted to have the fifth substitute rule and the smaller clubs all said no. Mm. So that's like my one example of like, oh, but that was a good thing they wanted to do that didn't <laughs> end up working. But I think that aside, that is probably the most common sense solution. Uh, we talked about this a little bit, Adam and I, yesterday that I am i don't mind if they were kicked out of Europe for a year. Uh, we did get a lot of people saying, but that's unfair to the coaches and the players and the staff. And and that is true. Like, I'm not denying that. I'm not going to try to argue around that. I just think there have to be... Punishments. There have to be things done to limit the likelihood of this happening again, and to remind these people, these owners, the front office people, that like they don't have just complete autonomy. And I think what they've done, what Graham's talking about, does do that. It removes them from decision making positions. They can't exert that sort of behind the scenes influence as much. And I think that that's a pretty smart solution overall.
3: What if what if they were permitted to still play in European competition? but the revenue that they receive is either cut entirely or yeah. cut in part. So then you're not punishing the players, the coaches, the fans who are still getting the sporting, L, L, the sporting side of it, but the owners are obviously being affected by not getting the money that they would normally get.
2: Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah. I actually, I think that works better because there's a weird reality in which if you do ban them, where my head went was like, yeah, give it to. I think I tweeted this. Like, give it to Leeds, give it to West Ham and Leicester, uh, and like let and team Everton teams who will really appreciate it, and then maybe it becomes a much more fun, open-ended competition. But then that sort of plays into the idea that if you remove these teams and put them in a Super League, you get a more fun and competitive Champions League, and that sort of proves their point. (laughs) So that's not great either. So maybe that's the balance, is, yeah, you limit their controlling influence... Uh, when it comes to the sort of league decisions. And then, yeah, you find them, you take away some of the money that they're bringing in. Maybe they can't invest it as much. They can't buy as many players. And I think that's also a good outcome that it makes players look at these 12 clubs and think, like, ah, you guys kind of think you're your own thing and now you're being punished for it. Is that where I want to sign? Or do I want to go to Ajax or Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund or somebody else? I, I think anything that maybe creates. A system in which some of these clubs have to think a little bit more and don't just assume that they can do whatever they want and people will get behind it. Because fundamentally, I've said this before, I will keep saying it, that is what I think this all boils down to is very rich people thinking, eh, we can do what we want, It's, it's our thing that we own and we'll be fine.
1: Yeah, that that is interesting. I do wonder whether you have to consider the fact that the twelve teams do still have a lot of power, and if you do mm-hmm. um, punish them, then they're going to flex that power. It might even, you know, expedite the, their next move. So there is that danger. They do; they, they're not necessarily going to sit there and take it, uh, whatever punishment they're given. But, but the the thing that stuns me about this whole situation is that it was so so poorly done. They had the. It must have yeah. taken what at least a year to plan this. Let's think think of all the meetings and the legal stuff they had to do to get this. All lined up for this big announcement on that Sunday night, and they—it took two days that they didn't even have the guts to see it through after having the gall to, to to suggest it in the first place, which is stunning in its own right. But just how poorly it was done, the PR was terrible. Neil Ashton evidently not involved in that one. The club, the way the clubs went completely radio silent after the announcement, after issuing this bizarre, you know. Um, press release, which only three of the clubs were quoted on, and they all all shared the same thing: a terrible website, a terrible logo, really badly commuted, uh, com- communicated plans to to the players, to the staff, and to the public. It just felt like if they'd have executed this a little differently and maybe you know reshaped it, they could have had a they could have lasted more, longer than two days. I would suggest, yeah. but uh. Right. Com- completely incredible it it felt it felt like this felt like and i hope i'm not getting too political but like if the trump white house had organized a a european super
2: league it would have it would have looked like this i felt like i'll I'll go with a different i think that's fair i'll go with a different political analogy because i i uh, I tweeted it the other day but uh it it, it reminds me of michael bloomberg's presidential run and the sort of how very quickly in the debates it was shown that he maybe shouldn't have been in that (laughs) uh in that competition or amongst that those uh opponents And I think this is another good example of maybe a bunch of people not being told no enough and not being told no consistently that it becomes a like, ah, we're all in the same room. We all know we're going to get away with it. And I mean, like Florentino Perez won't stop talking, as Graham said earlier. Like (laughs) it stands to reason that's how those meetings went is a bunch of people who never hear no all over talking each other and then deciding, well, we want to make money. Let's make whatever makes us money happen. It'll be fine and moving on. I just think it's a bunch of people who are out of touch pretty clearly not expecting the response they got. Let's and, not
1: forget, and, um, Perez is a 74-year-old president who tried to stage a coup and likes the sound of his own voice, so no wonder it went the way it did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and as you say, Ryan,
3: this, this could have turned out differently, I think, with a different approach. Um, you know, they, they, should have, they should have made out UEFA to be the bad guys, um, to be the ones who were failing football at, at, at the governance level. They could, they should have had sponsors and a broadcaster in in place because hmm. there were there were there were numbers of, uh, flying around about what would they say four billion euros a season, but with no detail on where that four billion was going to come from. And so, if you have a a broadcaster with a, a provisional deal in place becomes much easier to to point to where the money is going to come to come from and um, you speak to managers you have players on side you explain to them why this is going to be better for them and and you know instead of having Pep Guardiola who look I don't want to um, uh, question Pep Guardiola's uh, integrity or anything but this is a guy who is an ambassador for the 22 World, uh, Qatar World Cup which suggests that with some persuasion he can you can get him on side for certain causes. You you speak to him beforehand. You don't just leave the, these people reading it off uh, social media like the rest of us did. So I, I really think that as you say, Ryan, it was such a PR disaster. They've spoken about
1: it for three years, Perez said last night, and this is what they came up with. Yeah, just a shambles. Incredible, absolutely incredible. And and you mentioned Pep there. I, I there's. There's a lot of people who said like the fan response is what really was the tipping point here. And I think you, you've got to credit, credit the Chelsea fans who showed up at Stamford Bridge and, uh, uh, and the general fan response. And maybe they weren't expecting quite the uh, response, to these, these 12 teams. But my theory is that it's not just the fan response. It was the manager's response, the player's response, and also media response. You had people like Amazon saying, nope, we're, yeah. not, we're not being a part of this. And for me, the tipping point on Tuesday was Pep Guardiola's press conference, where he sort of outright said, this isn't great. Uh, and once you've lost someone like Pep, the manager of Manchester City, and they're quoting him on Manchester City's Twitter feed, by the way, that just me, that's the start of it becoming untenable for me. That was the yeah. tipping point.
3: And I think, and just to, sorry, Taylor, just to jump, no, no, jump no, in on. on, I think actually um, one of the key things in watching this from the UK, where I think it's fair to say the reaction from fans and the clubs of the six Premier League clubs, rather than. Maybe I'm being unfair here, but I feel like it was the Premier League clubs who kind of led the, the the backlash to this, the coordinated backlash, anyway. And I think it's important to to give this some political and societal context as well, because in the UK at the moment, there's a big story that's that's becoming a really big scandal around COVID of uh, billionaires enriching themselves with uh, contracts for public institutions and the hollowing out of the of those of those. Uh, those public institutions and football clubs are public institutions. I know they're businesses, but they are public institu- institutions. And so this, this was almost like the, it, it was a story that transcended soccer and became, it, it led the news for three, four days here in a, in a pandemic. It was the biggest story anyone was ever talking about. And when my mum texts me about something, you know, it's a, <laughs> you know, it's a big soccer story. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think they, I think they fell into this growing societal, um, disgruntlement about the billionaire class and the hollowing out of public institutions and that's where I think they, they, they didn't understand what they were getting into there was a political response there was as you say sponsors wanting to get out distance themselves from it because it was completely toxic in a way that transcended soccer and that's what they didn't grasp
2: yeah, one I'm- thing I wanted to uh, to emphasize there with the kind of the way this all fell apart and and who plays a part in that, who's responsible for it. one one thing that when Adam and I were talking yesterday, I was saying that I think this was like at its core a way for these clubs to make more money to to be able to then finance their debt, get out of debt, buy players, continue to basically have a license to print money. And uh, to his credit, John Kenny uh, on Twitter messaged and said a key point is that uh, City and Chelsea don't really need money. And yeah. and I think I had also dismissed yeah. the idea that some of those clubs in their statements said, like, hey, we kind of went along with it and maybe it was never the right decision. And I dismissed that that felt like sort of pointing fingers elsewhere and, and trying to shirk responsibility a little bit. But if we're going back to the Super League not really – ticking all the boxes, making sure everybody was in line. I think Chelsea and City weren't there for the money. They were there because they didn't want to be left behind, and they're Mm. being promised this super profitable, well-run, beloved competition that is immediately met with negativity and a hostile response. And if you're a team that's only going along because you don't want to be left behind, and suddenly the thing that you're going to doesn't seem like it's what was promised, you're going to pull out pretty quickly. And I think they really didn't get everybody on the same page about why they were there and what this meant. And that meant that as soon as one left, everybody left.
1: <sighs> I'm just the uh, the Seinfeld gif. That's a shame. While well, he's eating popcorn. <laughs> yeah. That's no, what I am sh- right now. That's a shame. <laughs> 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 Lest I remind you, gents, this is a listener question show. We've had it our say on the European Super League. Why don't we get to our listener questions right after these messages?
2: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone?
1: Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Hope you enjoyed those commercials. Hope you didn't skip them. If you skip them, why do you hate us? Perfect. Anyway, we've got a question here coming up from uh, Tyler Kinsella, who asks, with the end of domestic seasons coming up, which big signing in the Big Five Leaves was the most impactful? This is a great question. Tyler's vote for this, uh, the answer to his question, is Ruben Dias at Manchester City, which I think is a great answer. I've got a few ideas on Monoggin. Graham, would you like to suggest a few?
3: Yep, I've got a few. So I, th- I think Ruben Diaz is, is, uh, would probably be quite near the, the top of most people's list. His, his impact has been incredible. But thinking, thinking of other players, one that sprung to mind for me was Ollie Watkins at Aston Villa. Nice. Um, he has. I actually think he's been really unlucky in the is that just me he there's he seems to have had a number of disallowed goals and has hit the post in the bar and actually could have scored more but he's 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 proven himself as a goal scorer at at Premier League level forcing his way into the England discussion and actually uh, the thing that gets him on this list for me is his overall play and how he's given Aston Villa that apex of attack that they desperately lacked last, last season and just see his assist last night against uh, Manchester City. So I, I think he's one of my suggestions. And another one I would suggest would be Pedri at Barcelona, um, who arrived to not much fanfare last summer from Las Palmas. Huh. A 17-year-old and has basically been there, I mean, behind that that usual, that usual guy, the usual suspect, has probably been uh, Barcelona's player of the season. And, and more than that, he has created a sense of uh, Barcelona looking after youth again there's even been a suggestion that Messi wants to stay because he wants to act as a as a mentor to Pedri in the same way Ronaldinho was to him so he, he's been
1: brilliant on the pitch and off the field he could have an
3: impact as well so he's my other suggestion
1: Did Dest arrive this season as well at Barca right? He, he did he yes did. Would he be a candidate potentially?
3: Yes, I think he I think he hasn't quite been as impressive as Pedri and he's had a few injuries and I have seen him had a couple shaky games. But yes, generally he is now the first choice right back or right wing back for Barcelona and uh, it doesn't feel like a position they need to worry about anymore, Barcelona, after years of going without a, a natural right back. So,
2: yeah. Love it. And Graham, how long have you hated Americans? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> I love America, Taylor. You know that. <laughs> I do. I do. Uh, I think those are great nominations. I had a couple more myself. Uh, My number 1, I think, probably most impactful signing would be James Rodriguez to Everton. Not just because that was a free transfer, but because it's James Rodriguez going to Everton from Real Madrid. That did not seem like a thing that was going to happen, and certainly not to be managed by Carlo Ancelotti. But now here we are. And for him to uh, feature pretty prominently for them, get six goals, but also just kind of spark the attack, be this creative force. And I think... He's such a good player when teams are built around him, as is frequently the case with Colombia, but less so with Real Madrid, and Everton are going that way, have been going that way, and I think that's why we're seeing him look so strong. So that was uh, my number one nomination. Thomas Suchek to West Ham for the value and what he's brought to that side and is a very David Moyes player. Uh, And then my other one... It it would have worked better maybe a month or two ago, but Luis Suarez uh, to Atletico Madrid, Atletico yeah. Madrid from Barcelona, nineteen goals, fourth in La Liga. I think he was on a better rate of form or a better conversion rate maybe a month or so ago. Before he maybe the fatigue caught up, the length of the season caught up. But uh, that was another big one for me. Fair enough.
1: I think um, I think uh, Tyler with Ruben Diaz is is a pretty good no- nomination. Yeah. Um, my Everton pick would be Decore. I think who's been mm. ever-present there as good well. Show. So yep. maybe a bit more impactful than James Rodriguez, arguably on a day-to-day basis. Um, in Italy, I went for uh, Inter, obviously, leading Serie A with Nicolo uh, Barella, uh, who's been very, very good. Yeah. Signed oh, from I forgot Calieri. they signed so many people, yeah. Yeah, but he, he he, being the pick of the crop, I would argue, being, you know, 41, 41 appearances, good Lord. Um, and, and he's got a few goals as well, and has been a, a, a game-changer in several of their performances, certainly the ones I've yeah, seen. Yeah, good show. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: they sent Hakimi this season too, right? <laughs> Hakimi, yeah. They, yeah, spent some, uh, yeah. they spent some money. Uh, Inter Milan did.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think he he's, he might be my closest. They
2: really one. needed that Super League. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what they they legitimately do? Yes, yes. That's oh, another boy. conversation. Oh um, boy. I've got a, an interesting one for you. Um, Eric Max in Choupo-Moting for Bayern Munich. So he comes from uh, from Paris Saint Germain, but. You, you might argue that the, he's not the, the most impactful, but he's had a lot of Correct. impact. He's got nine goals. <laughs> he's got nine <laughs> goals. Four of his goals from the Champions League. He's been a decent understudy uh, mm-hmm. for for dosky' I'd argue. So that was my outside, am I being crazy pick. Uh, but one more I would suggest. Uh, what about Edinson Cavani?
3: Yeah, I, I think yeah. I think he he's certainly given Manchester United something different, hasn't he? They re- yeah. I think they, they really need to keep him, otherwise this summer's going to... You know, this, all, all this season seem to be gearing up for a, a new centre-back to be what they go for this summer. If he leaves, do they need a new centre-back or a new centre-forward? That's a yes, problem. Yes, I
2: think, I think and a couple other things as well. Yeah, because his dad was saying he wants to go back to Uruguay, right? Or wants to go back to South America and be yeah, closer bo- to bo- family. Yeah, both
3: Juniors I think have, have offered is. him a contract, yeah.
2: Yeah, unless it's pen It's probably not going to be to Uruguay. So yeah, I think, I think they probably do need to keep him for what he offers both in terms of being a center forward where they don't really have a player who's doing what he can do and provides the movement. And then, to like uh, Graham, what you were saying about Pedro and Messi, I think also can probably help tutor some of the Man United players, some of the youngsters on how to do that movement, how to be in so many good places at the right time. I think he's very good at that. Uh, And though he is a veteran, I would say he still has much to offer Man United.
1: Very good stuff. Thank you for the question, Tyler. We're going to move on to one from Raghav Gupta, who asks, who says, VAR in the Premier League seems especially bad compared to other leagues. Why is that? Uh, I'd, I'd like to have a crack at answering this one first, if you don't mind, boys. Um yeah. I would suggest there's something in the fact that it's maybe we see it as worse because a lot of us watch that league more than the, we watch the other leagues, and it being an English-speaking league, we kind of we see more of the we see more of Stockley Park. Like, do you know the name of the, even know the name of the Bundesliga Stockley Park? Because I, for one, do not know that. Maybe I'm remiss there, but I feel like we we're, we're more into the machinations of VAR in the Premier League. We're seeing more of these bad decisions, like an armpit or a you know the, the 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 questionable drawing of the lines on the VAR we see a little bit more of that day to day in the Premier League. And I think it had a it had a rough start and there's been a change in the Premier League with the, the referees not consulting the screens, which they do now, which I think has been a, a solid change for them. But I found an article from April 2020 that said uh-huh. yep. researchers found that Premier League referees had the lowest percentage of decisions overturned through VAR yeah. than the other four major European leagues. That percentage last year was at 32% uh, compared to 91 for the Liga, 90% for Bundesliga, and eighty nine percent for Syria and eighty five for League R. Oh, so wildly differently it's being used yeah. in those uh, in those other leagues compared to the Premier League. And when you look at that, why is that? Is it because the referees just are scared of overturning their colleagues in England? Maybe what? it's something to do with that program.
3: It's also yeah. just to do with the amount of times it's it's being used. Yeah. So I'm, I think we may have read the same article because oh, I think also, all three of us did. <laughs> yeah. It also it also qualified that um, last season the Pre- it was used uh, VR was using the Premier League 275 times, whereas uh, contrasted to the Bundesliga it was only used 84 times. So that that to me says that the, the, those leagues and also I should mention the other. Uh, big European leagues were closer to the Bundesliga's level than the Premier League's level. Serie
2: A was second with 111. So Premier League 275, Serie A 2 was 111.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And that says to me, well, I mean, I think that says to everyone that the the other leagues are using VAR to do what it was supposed to do initially, which which was to stamp out any clear and obvious errors. So they're only using it when they really, really have to. And in those instances, it's likely something is going to get overturned. So I think that's probably the biggest difference.
2: Yeah, I think I think that that's that's what it is for me, is it's being used more often, but then having less of an impact. So it feels like, what are, we, what are we doing here? Why are we using it so often? And I think you do hear a lot from La Liga of, yeah, it's clear and obvious, so they'll look at it, and if it's not clear and obvious, they move on. In Major League Soccer, uh, they do have the official, always go check the screen, but then they don't use the line technology, which is more of a stadium issue than a a choice by the league or anything like that but when you don't have the line again you're going to clear an obvious and it in some ways makes things clear because you don't have to draw that little line and see the two inch gap and i think that also makes a difference in terms of how mls uses it versus the premier league but yeah i think when you have it being utilized as often it's going to slow games down it's going to feel much more common than it does when you only use it what 84 times you said graham
1: yeah yeah um so, yeah, Raghav, we could have just sent you the article that we all read in, in some information there, but uh, I hope that answered the question for you. Uh, thank you very much for that one. We've got one, uh, uh, one more here from Michael Hastings Black, which is a great name, by the way. What great club players have had a limited impact on their national team because their individual skills didn't fit an overall system? Now, as an Englishman, I immediately go to... England's long-standing, for at least 50 or 60 years, hesitance to use maverick players, maverick midfielders and forwards. So one of the big ones that stands out in my lifetime is Matt Letizia, who yep. was, you know, Mr. Southampton, who basically kept him in the Premier League for a long time. One of the most talented players from the British Isles, Guernsey, whatever, um, eight England caps he got not used in England's system, not the kind of player that England liked to use. England liked to be this orderly 4-4-2 traditionally, or certainly in that era with uh, Matt Letizia. Another one of the Mavericks would be Rodney Marsh, who we may know from, uh, from the radio over here these days and obviously had an NASL career as well. He only had nine England caps. Uh, you know, he was one of the biggest players in English soccer playing um, uh, with George Best at Fulham, uh, playing uh, for QPR, and playing for Man City, and nearly winning a title with Man City as well. And even someone like Glenn Hoddle, uh, who later became England manager as well, you know, this gifted, incredibly gifted player, you know, two two really good feet. He had 53 appearances, which seems far too little for a player of his talent in that era as well so that was where my attention was drawn to the the maverick players because this is long-standing um almost a, you know oh no we don't want mavericks doing you know doing their thing and being creative on the field that's not the british the english way no 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 so that's kind of the uh the the, the thing that um uh, that stood out to me to answer this question yeah. taylor what are, what are your thoughts
2: Uh, I wanted to ask you then about the uh, England options there for a moment because I think it's hard with this question to go with the they didn't fit the system as opposed to they didn't play for the national team. Like Mikel Arteta doesn't play for Spain, but that's because he has Chabi Alonso and Sergio Busquets ahead of him. Is Paul Scholes a player who didn't fit the system or is it because they had Lampard and Gerrard? Well, that that was the one I came to and I think
3: because England were wedded to the 4-4-2 They seem to use skulls on the left Mm -hmm. a a lot of the times. I remember skulls England playing Scotland in a Euro. Oh yeah. 2000 playoff that must have been year 2000 um and Scholes actually scored at Hamden in that game but he was he was playing on the left wing which was utterly bizarre and actually yeah. I struck I struggled to come up with any answers to this question that weren't English they were all English the ones <laughs> I thought of even <laughs> modern day ones like Jack Grealish yeah. seems to you know as, as fits into your Ryan your uh your Maverick theory there which is Yeah, there's solid evidence behind that. England seems to produce brilliant players that they just can't fit into their national team.
1: That's the Paul Scholes one, that, yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's a good shout. Because I remember Paul Scholes was like France 98 bossing it and around that turn of the millennium bossing it. But you're right, yeah, he didn't quite find his natural natural place in that team. And I think the reason why we look at English players not fitting in the system, because other players who didn't get their turn on the national team, who have, who were very uh, skilled individually, maybe it was for different reasons. And the two that spring to mind, well, maybe three that spring to mind there, uh, David Ginola, who, you know, never, never you know, a huge Premier League player, very, very talented with Spurs and Newcastle. Also, was it, it was PSG he came from? I think in France. Um, Eric Cantona as well, one of Manchester yeah, yeah. United's all-time greats who never made a dent in the French national team. But it was mainly because those two were jerks rather than that
2: they didn't well, actually
1: fit into the team.
2: So I had Cantona as well, and I did some reading because he was the focal point of that team. He was their main creator in 1995, prior to Euro 96, and he does not go to Euro 96 and I assume that was just because of the Selhurst Park incident, which is a big part of it, but it's also what happened during uh, his suspension and absence, which is that Zinedine Zidane got very, very good. Mm. And so when he was eligible again, it was like, well, we could play you, but we have Zidane. And you don't really yeah. fit, and you are a jerk. So. How, uh, see ya! <laughs> it's how Kieran Tierney feels, pretty
3: much, for Scotland. Same, same, same deal <laughs> with Andy Robertson. Zidane <laughs> is Andy Robertson in this analogy. <laughs>
2: I think that's fair. That's what I've always called him: is the yeah. Scottish left back, or right back? No, left back, Zinedine Zidane. I don't yeah. call him that, obviously.
1: And the, the other Ooh. name I was going to mention uh, was Paolo DiCanio, <laughs> who never played for Italy. Goodness me! What? Darn. I
3: actually don't think. I mean, I, I was aware he didn't have a, much of a nas- an international career, but he never played for Italy. No, didn't get a cap, which is incredible. He's, he's got one. He had one. I'm just looking at the internet now, which tells me. Oh, I got I wrong. He, no, 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 no. He got one B-cat <laughs> in 1989. Uh, wow. That is incredible. I th- that
1: Is that is because incredible. he's a jerk as well, though? Because he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I yeah. mean, it is, but I think there's always those players who... I think it, it probably is a little bit the Maverick idea again, right? It's that like players who are very good, but maybe aren't going to fit the unified system of the team, or players who are like very individualistic and fun and create highlights, but don't quite fit aren't always going to be included or will be on the periphery. And yeah, so I think, Ryan, it comes down to the Mavericks. I think you, you've nailed it. And also these guys have
3: to spend a month in a hotel at the at the same time Yikes. in major tournaments. And France found out what happens in 2010. Yeah. <laughs> when you maybe pick one too many Mavericks to, uh, to stay in that hotel.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, my only last one, first of all, that is totally true, Graham. I had not really thought about that, about how when you are cooped up, Uh, things can go south pretty quickly. Ask the U.S. team at the World Cup in 1998. When you're Uh, cooed up, you
1: get cooed up like the French national team. Boom. Thank you very
2: much. (laughs) I'm here all week. (laughs) That's good work by you. Thank you. A less obvious one, but one that I remember from the 2018 World Cup because I wrote an article about the names that weren't going to be there is uh, Javi Martinez from Spain. And that's one who has played for big clubs at the time, was playing regularly for Bayern Munich, I believe, uh, but did not make the Spain squad. And that is because in terms of what he's bringing to that team, I think he would have brought them a more like hard-nosed defensive midfield sort of uh, mentality. And that's not quite what they need. Obviously, he can play the technical side as well, but they were looking for more of the kind of distributor the Sergio Busquets and so I think he wasn't quite in the model they needed so they left him out Raja Nangalan was another one who was left out for somewhat similar reasons but probably also personal reasons obviously that one for Belgium not Spain
1: thank you very much Michael Hastings Black for your question we'll be back with more answers hopefully after these messages (laughs) Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are taking your questions. Thank you so much for submitting Then Joey Jadlowski has done just that. He says, like Wondo against Belgium or Bill Buckner in baseball. I don't know baseball or who Bill Buckner is, but he's got an alliterative name, just like Joey Jodlowski. Who are some famous soccer examples of players who've had some solid careers, whose reputations have been ruined by a huge mistake in a big game? I've got some ideas here, Graham. What are your thoughts?
3: Is Bill Buckner? Sorry, I know this wasn't the point of the question, but is Bill Buckner the guy
2: in *Curb Enthusiasm*? Is that yes. the baseball guy? Is he in? Yes, is it is. Right, cool. I have a friend. And that's of and that's and that's the same. You know the joke in that one where they toss him the baseball and it yeah, goes yeah, out the yeah. window. Same thing. I think with Buckner, uh, he was it was like a routine play to him, and it went through his legs, and it opened up the whole game. Uh, so basically, yeah, he he had one bad mistake that cost the Mets the World Series. I think it was, or maybe. It was either the Mets or the Red Sox. I apologize, baseball fans. <laughs> right. So there's my frame of reference. Covering as well. There we go. <laughs> I thought
1: it was uh, he was a member of REM, but I think I'm getting Peter Buck and Bill Berry confused. <laughs> anyway, I, I digress. Uh, so, so Graham, go ahead. With yeah, yeah, answer, yeah.
3: Sir. So I think one of the the most obvious suggestions for this would maybe be Loris Carius. So the the the, yes. the the key I the key I took from this was from a was a, a solid career. So I guess you would. Naturally, mentioned Gerard, but I think that's a bit unfair because he's not solely yeah. remembered for that. The slip, I know it was a big part of his career, and people talk how about I remember him, but, yeah. But um, I think Loris Karius, to the point where his whole career, I think it's fair to say, has been ruined. Like, up until that point, was a first-team goalkeeper in the Bundesliga, was a youth goalkeeper for for Germany all the way through his career. And then that one game, uh, you know, completely... I don't think you would get a Premier League club touching him, uh, even if going anywhere near him, because of that one game. Even if they thought he was a good goalkeeper, they wouldn't sign him because of everything that came with that. And and I'm going to throw in a Scottish suggestion here. Um, A guy called Don Mason who was picked for Scotland uh, ahead of Lou, McCary and Archie Gemmel for a uh, infamous game Scotland played against Peru at the 1978 World Cup. He, that, This was a game Scotland were widely expected to win. We classically, typical Scotland, ended up losing that 3-1 and he missed a penalty. His autobi- autobiography is actually called Still Saying Sorry, which makes me feel a bit sad. <laughs> <laughs> Aww.
1: <laughs> Taylor, any suggestions?
2: Yeah, I had uh lothicaris as well, uh mostly because of you Google him, you will just get photos of him crying. So that feels appropriate Aww. to this conversation. I, I think I agree with Graham that Steven Gerrard is probably one that comes to mind, but there are so many other things about his career that I think it's hard to say that his reputation was ruined by that. Can we say John the, Terry
1: the, with the penalty slip as well? Then in that same instance,
2: that, I it's it, that's a tougher one. But yeah, I think in the end, because he does end up winning the Champions League, right? Yeah. It's all about him, and he's also totally, I'd he's say he's totally the one who did it all. Yeah,
1: he ruined his <laughs> reputation uh, on his own merit. It's
2: true, <laughs> that's <laughs> very <laughs> true. Um, uh, there's, I have one that sort of fits, and one that I have a question about. The one that sort of fits is just much more bleak, but it's maybe Andres Escobar uh, from Colombia. Yeah, yeah, because it's like like had a good career in Colombia, and I wouldn't say his reputation was ruined. It's just that he was murdered for the own goal, and so to some extent, that's a big mistake that then uh, ended both his life and his career. So that yeah. felt like mentioning, even if it's a little bit depressing and bleak. The one that I would like you all's opinion on is David Seaman, because a very established career, a very consistent performer for Arsenal for England, but I will forever remember him for getting chipped from 35 yards by Ronaldinho.
3: Um, yes, as a Scott, I would love to say that's the first thing I think of, but actually I think he... I, I, do you know the first thing I think of is there's, there's a save David Seaman makes where he claws the ball back from the goal line, from like someone it's like a header from like five yards out I wish I could remember who it was against or who 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 made the header but that's what I think of with David Seaman but I I would I would place him in the same category as Gerard and Terry okay yeah they were he's a legend who made a mistake and it doesn't quite define his whole career
1: yeah, and I think also he was he was lobbed in the '90s in a in a Super Cup final not a Super Cup like a, the Cup Winners Cup final I think it was I can't and it was lobbed from a much further distance I've seen to remember um, so I mean, evidently
2: that was a thing. Like I, I am so baffled by this, and I'm baffled by it when it comes to De Gea as well. Uh, by the way, in the break I said I would talk less and now here we are. Uh, <laughs> but like, I do kind of want to know how that is that goalkeepers struggle with lobs and long distance shots. Like, why is that a thing that challenges people? Well, I don't it's, understand. It's
1: interesting, because, it, and it happens in spades as well, because Neil Sullivan, the Wimbledon goalkeeper who was very famously lobbed by David Beckham from the halfway line, mm-hmm. a game which I was present at, no less, uh, in the 95-96 season. It was the opening day of the season. I remember it very well. Uh, we lost Three 0 I believe. Um, the week, the following week, um, Wimbledon played away at Newcastle, and he was lobbed by Alan Shearer um, from a slightly <laughs> less distance. But he got lobbed twice in two weeks, uh, so it was it was uh, yeah, pretty harsh. But I I, I I imagine it's to do with positioning and, and and things like that. And even with David Seaman by Ronaldinho, n- no keeper was getting to that, were they? Um, mm, I mean, I, I think know. it's a floated ball to the back. <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah. Well, my, my other suggestion is a goalkeeper because I think this <laughs> the answer to this question do, does lend itself to the goalkeeping position. Um, it does. Uh, Massimo Taibi. Manchester United's goalkeeper. Yeah. Who, uh, oh, yeah. In who, A name you might not have... Good career, Ryan. A Good career. Time. I mean, he wasn't bad before <laughs> that, I suppose. He came from Italy, and he cost £4.5 million pounds in '99, yeah. which was quite a lot for a goalkeeper. He was the heir apparent to Peter Schmeichel. He was well, yeah. The next Peter Schmeichel is this how he was built, because he, um, Schmeichel went to uh, Lisbon, sporting Lisbon at that point. Uh, I think it was either his, his first game, he made a horrible error, and I think it, maybe it was his second or third game. The aforementioned Matt Letizier. Sort of pop poked one and it went. Was it through his legs? It was. It was very embarrassing. He was dubbed. Yeah, exactly. Um, He was called the Blind Venetian. He was from uh, Venice, Uh, or he played in Venice, I should say. Uh, That was what he was. uh, His reputation was ruined thereafter. So that was one of my other answers to that question
3: I uh, I actually have my notes written down almost every Manchester United goalkeeper after Peter Schmeichel (laughs) Um, (laughs) so you're not wrong
2: Taibbi comes into that category Tim Howard Tim Howard is in that category as well makes a couple high profile mistakes and Roy Carroll he goes oh yeah I forgot about Roy Carroll I'm still reeling from Ryan saying the next Peter Schmeichel and realizing that the next Peter Schmeichel was, in fact, Casper Schmeichel. Yeah. It's weird to me that they play the same position. Is that weird, that a father and son play the exact same position?
3: I think that's less weird than uh, Zinedine
2: Zidane's son being a goalkeeper. <laughs> See, just I just he- love the idea that that was just Zidane, like, raining shots on him as a seven-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> that's like that's the back goal. goal. Yeah, you <laughs> Exactly. <you're getting> shots. <laughs> He just carried on into his professional career.
1: Uh, Let's move on to a question from Robert Cordova. Thank you very much for this one, Robert. And it pertains to mistakes and goalkeepers as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Here we go. Rob Green was recently on Sky Sports to discuss his career, and it's a good clip if you want to check it out on YouTube. Inevitably, his mistake from the USA against England game at the 2010 World Cup came up. How does the Total Soccer Show view Rob's, Rob Green's mistake 10 years later? And uh, Robert Cordova notes he really hopes that I, Ryan Bailey, will be on the show <laughs> when this question is asked. So I guess I'll go first in that instance then. um, i still don't, i don't love that that happened, and it was obviously yep. one individual mistake, but for me, that was by far nowhere near the worst thing that happened to England at that tournament. This was yeah. the opening game of the tournament um, and it wasn 't a terrible performance, but I think you know overrun in midfield a few times, and the u s certainly held their own and a one one didn 't feel like a travesty. The travesty for me came in the game that followed against Algeria, which finished nil nil uh, i don 't know if you remember that. I remember it was that game. An appalling, appalling performance. This is the one where I think Wayne Rooney at the end of the game, the, the fans were booing in Cape oh, Town. Yeah. England fans who travelled to the World Cup were booing their team. Wayne Rooney shouting down the camera, um, you know, not nice to be booed by your own fans or words to that effect, which was his only contribution of that evening, incidentally, because he, he was terrible. And the whole England team were completely feckless against a, an opponent they would have been very much expected to beat. And it ended up that England only just squeezed past, uh, was it Slovenia? I think the third group yeah, game. Yeah, Slovenia. Yep. Um, and, got it, and, and it put us on a path to meeting Germany in the knockout rounds, which didn't go well. And also, I'd even say the ghost goal that Frank Lampard scored against Germany bothered me even more than Rob Green's mistake, because that would have made it 2-2 just before the half, which could have completely changed the the dynamic of the game, uh, which uh, England lost 4-1 eventually. Maybe that's wishful thinking on my part, perhaps. But that finishing second in the group, which... I largely attribute to that poor performance against Algeria that put England on a path to the final that would have been Germany, then Argentina, then Spain. The alternate path, which the US took by finishing top of that group was Ghana, Uruguay, Netherlands to reach the final. That would have been their path. So uh, to, to answer a very long answer to that is that I, I don't feel any, any malice or anything towards Rob Green because I think he, he very much wasn't the worst part of that tournament for me.
3: Yeah, I mean, it it was an irrelevancy, and and, I mean, at the time, it felt catastrophic, but you look at, I mean, Emil Heskey started that game against the USA. I mean, (laughs) Emil Heskey started for England uh, up front in a World Cup. I I know Emil Heskey was good at a time, but not in 2010. Um, Yeah, (laughs) for me as a Scot, I remember the 2010 World Cup with England. So 2006... Did you watch it, Graham? Yeah, yes, it did. <laughs> did. they broadcast it
2: in Scotland? Okay,
3: <laughs> we we were there once upon
2: a time. Um, I like that Ryan was just forced to talk about his team and a bad mistake and a high yeah. profile like bad tournament, and he just immediately has to to dump on Scotland. Yeah. I think <laughs> to get out of it. I, I think the
3: World Cup refers it's projection, to Taylor. <laughs> I think I think the World Cup refers to uh, fans in Scotland as legacy fans. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the 2006 World Cup. England's team was that was what that was a proper team, and I think it was. The, the, I think England were right at that time to be really, really confident that they could win a World Cup. Whereas 2010, I remember that as like the height of that era's uh, complacency and hubris, or because that team wasn't good enough to win a World Cup. But yeah, England. I think Ryan, did England win every qualifier or something going into that World Cup?
1: Yeah, very... we went through a spate where we didn't lose qualifiers ever. And I think that was part yeah, of it, yeah.
3: I but it was a very weak group. And I think Eng- England at that point thought that they were going to be one of the front runners. And clearly that was not the case. And I think everyone eh. else saw that as the case. But yeah, you, unfortunately, your team's rather good now. And I'm a bit scared.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't be scared. It's what... going to be fun. I I will give you a reason to not be scared, Graham, because part of what I think of when I think of the Rob Green mistake from an England perspective is furthering the narrative that, like, who is the last England goalkeeper you can fully trust David to be Zeman. reliable? But even <laughs> Seaman gets lobbed in, and gets eliminated from the World Cup as a result off of a free kick from 35 yards out and a tight angle, I would say. But even David then, Zeman I take your me. point. But, it's, but there's, there's the Paul Robinson um, whiff that leads to you all not going to yeah. the Euros. There's questions about Jordan Pickford for forever. There's David James making mistakes. And I think it fuels the narrative that England's goalkeepers let them down and can't be relied upon in big moments.
0: <sighs>
1: yeah, that's um, – <laughs> <laughs> The quote from the um, Guardian's match report of the Ar- Algeria game, um, the last line of it says, "Robert Green is a lucky man. He at least won't be associated with this catastrophe," which I think sums up the English sentiment. Of um,
2: maybe, um, I would suggest that US fans talk about Rob Green more than English. Oh, fans a thousand do. percent. I think I think that's the other side of the coin. Is like for me, I remember my wife. Uh, and I were, were dating. We were in our apartment, and we had bought like an American flag for this game, and it came with a flag holder that had an eagle on the tip of it. And by like ten friends who were over, who were all very drunk, like we're like, oh, you have to hold the eagle, and then and then things will go well. And as she picked it up, Dempsey scored. And from the rest of the tournament, she had to carry the eagle with her for U.S. <laughs> games. That was a rule. Uh, so I remember it for that. But I also remember it being like a Clint Dempsey try stuff. That was the. The G-rated version of what Bruce Arena said about him, and this kind of fits into that of like, yeah, hey, why not? I'll just try a low percentage shot from the top of the box, and in it goes. I think that's how people sort of understand it from the U.S. perspective. Is definitely fortunate, but yeah, Clint Dempsey's just trying things, and then it also allows American fans to be obnoxious when talking about soccer. I'm going to say it real loud for England people listening, uh, because I think this again goes into the narrative that England has never beaten the U.S. in a competitive fixture. So in your face, Ryan.
1: Thanks, Taylor.
2: Um, I, I, I remember watching this game um, at a
1: wedding. It was my wife's brother's wedding, my brother-in-law's wedding, I suppose. Um, they're divorced now, so a uh, uh, lo- lovely day all round that was for uh, for all of us. And, and I remember watching that at the reception. Anyway, enough information about that. Let's move on. Did you on. say
2: my wife's brother-in-law's wedding?
1: No, my wife's brother. So that's my brother-in-law, okay, right? Okay, okay. I'm okay, there it
2: is. Sorry. I was like, your wife's brother-in-law's wedding. Isn't that to her sister? I was confused. <laughs> now I understand. Uh, she's from the
1: southwest of England, so... The, You know, it's like Shelbyville in The Simpsons, if you know what I mean. Um, Let's uh, move on to the final couple of questions Mm -hmm. here. Kenneth Zayden asks, with a small roster, should the USWNT take two centre forwards, Lloyd and Morgan, or use the versatility of some of their other attackers, Press, uh, Macario, et cetera, et cetera, as the backup for that spot to allow them some more cover in other Mm -hmm.
2: positions? Taylor, I'm going to go to you as the American on this podcast. I will do my best to answer by saying, unfortunately for Kenneth, I'm going to split the difference and say they should do one of each because the Olympic roster is 18 players two of which are goalkeepers. That leaves you with 16 outfield players. U.S. Women's National Team tends to play a 4-3-3. Uh, for my comfort levels, I would then want six defenders, five midfielders, and five attackers. And I think when you're looking at that attack, midfield is pretty set with Julie Ertz, Lindsey Horan, Rose Lavelle, and the Mui, Mewi, Sam Mewes and Christy us I think will probably be the midfielders. And that leaves you with five attacking positions. I think Megan Rapinoe will definitely be there. I think Alex Morgan will as well. And so then you're looking at who else do you want to bring to to bolster that attack, and it probably is Kristen Press, it probably is Lynn Williams, and that leaves one spot to maybe Tobin Heath, maybe Carly Lloyd. And I have a feeling Vlatko likes the kind of veteran presence and uh, ability to score goals off the bench that Carly Lloyd will bring, even though she hates playing off the bench. So I think that's the big question is, will it be Carly Lloyd or will it be Tobin Heath or another attacker? But I think I'm okay with him bringing those five midfielders and then some maybe depth out wide as opposed to through the middle.
1: You know in the movie Old School when Will Ferrell's on the debate stage and he just gives the perfect
2: answer in one big breath? I think you just did it. Taylor. All right. I'll take that. I did black out while I was answering that, so uh, I think that fits, yes. It's a perfect
1: answer. All right. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's get our final question before we uh, close out this podcast. We are running a little bit long. It's from Guy uh, Yedwab. Thank you, Guy, for your question. This is a good one, actually. Here we go. He sets the scene. The dystopian future has arrived. A billionaire owner of Royal Dutch Shell pays the expansion fee to inaugurate Richmond FC, not AFC Richmond, resplendent in white home and black away kits. Mr. Royal Dutch Shell insists that experience wins championships. The question, which 35-year-old plus... Sorry, I'll go again. Which 35-plus-year-old star or international star aside from Ronaldo would you sign and which Thirty-plus-year-old USMNT player would best complement them. Mmm. I've got some ideas. Taylor, would you like to run first here?
2: I would. I would like to first ask: Is Richmond FC the name of the team from oh, Ted Lasso? Is. I still have not no, seen no, it. No,
1: it's AFC Richmond.
2: Oh, right. AFC okay. Richmond. Okay. Oh, right, yeah. So it's nearly because late. I I played for FC Richmond growing up. So I I, I find this to be an even weirder question because I don't know if guys asking it for the Ted Lasso purposes or for my purposes. For the Richmond, by the way.
1: Um. Uh, they're called AFC Richmond. Sorry. The theme is by Marcus Munther to that show, uh, who is a famous Wimbledon fan. They play at Selhurst of Park, course. where Wimbledon played for a decade. I'm pretty sure Ted Lasso is a Wimbledon production. Let's move on.
2: <laughs> Always got to get the Wimbledon reference in there. So much so <laughs> that apparently Siri, my, my Siri, needed to respond. My answer is that when we're talking uh, over 35 or 35 or older international star, it, I'm going Luka Modric for sure as my midfield creator. Ooh. And then... For an over 30 American, first of all, in looking at the last... U.S. national teams. If you take Tim Ream out of the equation and you're not talking about goalkeepers, yeah. we have not a player over yep. 30 there's in none. a very long time. It's, it's <laughs>
3: slim pickings.
2: It is. So I think I'm going with, oh, is that what you both did as well? I see what happened here. <laughs> um, so I think Michael Bradley is, is definitely an option, but I think there's a bit of recency bias here because of what I saw from him in the Calf Champions League. I also like him just sort of as a leader of the team, but I'm going with Alejandro Bedoya of the Philadelphia Union. I, I think he'd be Fun alongside Luka Modric, he'd be a little bit more of an enforcer, but is also good on the ball, but can also be box-to-box box and can do some of the legwork. Even though he is a little bit older, I, I trust him to get the job done, complimenting Luka Modric.
1: Because of the lack of 30-plus-year-old USMNT players that uh-huh. you just mentioned there, Taylor, I didn't necessarily say which player would compliment them. I, I mainly picked these players on their own merits, and I I, I can't... I, 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 uh, maybe went with Brad Gazan. I don't know why, but mainly because he's on cameo. I just realized he's on cameo. You can get a Brad Gazan cameo for fifty six dollars and twenty five cents. The top review it's on his troubling. cameo is: "Brad is a gem. He brought the same attention to detail and sense of urgency that you see on the field to a holiday shout out." <laughs> Bring the, what to what the does that just mean he said it really fast? <laughs> like, wow. hey guys, this is me. I gotta go. Bye. Like,
2: was that his <laughs> <laughs> urgency? I think. He shouted
1: it while wearing gloves, I assume, yeah. is what he did on the cameo.
3: And was that review sent after he got sent off in the CONCACAF Champions League?
2: <laughs> it was on the way out. That's why it was so urgent. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, there's still a sense of urgency in that. So, um, but in terms of the 35-plus um, star player... There's actually not an awful lot. Say, even in the Premier League, like so. Yeah. If, if you can have someone to compliment a goalkeeper, Thiago Silva, who's 36, you could argue would be pretty good. Um, Fernandinho, he could even drop back. Who would, uh, who would do a job? I would argue in that team. And in terms of other players who I would trust, who are above their age to be in the billionaires team, um, Zlatan has to be mentioned, doesn't he? I think, um, of the kind of person who would come to Richmond FC should Royal Mr. Royal Dutch Shell uh, <laughs> command it and uh, re- replenish him with the wages he deserves. Um, that's just about where I got to with this question, Graham. Yeah,
3: I mean, so key to, key to the players that I picked was the fact that I, I thought this was a, an MLS team rather than the Ted Lasso team. Uh, I think a, a giveaway was the resplendent in white home and black away kits, which I think is the... Uh, the uniform
1: for every uh, self-respecting... Oh, uh, Graham, hold, hold the phones. I've read this wrong. It, it, it's Richmond, Virginia. This is referring to, right? I've, I've yeah. read this as a European team. I'm completely way off guard. Okay, continue. So I have gone for Eniesta, uh, who I
3: believe is still playing in Japan, I think. And I'm I still a little bit. I'm still a little bit bitter that he didn't move to MLS, which that felt like a thing that should have happened. And also, I want to see the look on his face when he has to play road games at Yankee Stadium. Um, so I've gone for Iniesta. An and the, uh, the the USMNT t- player I struggled with for the same reason that there isn't many to choose from. So I've gone for a, a kind of 2014 era player who is now 30. Um, and I've gone for my old favourite mixed disc rude, because you need, you need you need to sell some jerseys, and who better than someone who really should have been a male model rather than uh, a soccer player? So yeah.
2: And he got the two X's in mix, so I think there is something to be said for the jersey with the two X's. Does look a little bit cooler. You're right. You're right, Graham. Those are going to move.
3: Exactly.
1: <laughs> He's I was also reading his some units. I like it.
3: I was also reading as his, his, uh, his Wikipedia page. And apparently his nickname. So obviously Mix isn't his his real name, but the name the nickname Mix came from his mother, who gave him that nickname when he was learning to walk, as he was energetic and ran around the house like a mix master. That's not the sort of. I'm sorry thing what? A mix a mix master is apparently like the you know the appliance that you use to mix like when you're baking. Oh. Run run around the house like a mix. Ma- Master. It's not something that I mean. Do mix masters run around anywhere at all? No.
1: Did the parents <laughs>
2: In fact, work work the they stand still. <laughs> it's bizarre.
1: Very, very strange.
2: Um, it's a, a Roomba, a Roomba mix master. You put it on the Roomba, and then it goes around the house and mixes things. That <laughs> so makes sense.
3: Really should have been Roomba <laughs> Disco. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Roomba Disco. I like it. I mean, that does like kind of carry like. Categorize his uh versatility in that he, you know, looks like he might bump into walls occasionally. Yeah, yeah. That that fits. Is he on cameo? That's a question. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm probably I, no one needs to be on cameo I, I, I don't know I, I don't know about that I just I think I see people post like oh this person said hello to me and it's like because you paid them <laughs> they, they didn't just happily do that out of the goodness of their heart that that's my feelings on cameo now I feel like an old man now I, we brought it full circle
1: I don't know much about cameo and OnlyFans, but they seem like there's not much between them in many respects I don't know and I'm, I'm embarrassed that I, uh, I didn't get that this was Richmond, Virginia we're referring to, given the esteemed company that we are in, Graham. I, I, I grew up... only
2: one of your co-hosts had tried to mention that at the beginning of the question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I grew up far too close to the actual real Richmond, not the imposter Virginia one. That's my excuse. I, was, I just pictured this as AFC Richmond.
2: Um, so my... me, I would disagree with that, except we're literally named after that Richmond. So, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: you all, you all. Yeah, 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 okay.
2: <laughs> lots of, lots of uh, new
1: England places, including New England, I think you'll find out here, Taylor. What? Just a little bit of education no. for you.
2: I thought that was named after the other England. <laughs> England, New Jersey.
1: <laughs> All right, I think that's about time we wrap up this Listen to Questions show. Uh, thank you very much to everybody for submitting your questions. Thank you again to the Europa uh, the Europa Super League, the European Super League, for giving us so much more to talk about Graham, an absolute pleasure having you on the show as always. Once again, a twofer for you this week. That agent is working overtime. I, I, know I've got the same agent as you, so uh, <laughs> give me some more. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we both employ Mino Raiola, by the way, and we, he's he's taking a bigger cut from us because now Ed Woodward's gone. Uh, he's not going to charge outrageous yeah. prices to Man United anymore. So and the, uh... and the Super League's gone
3: as well, so that's affected us. <laughs> <it does laughs> oh as well.
2: gosh, won't someone think of Mino? What a shame. Anyway, Taylor, I, like, I, I need he's... I need you all to know that I know that you're both joking. But if either of you is ever represented by Mino Raiola. That, that will be the end of your appearances on the Total Soccer Show. I am not negotiating with Mino Raiola, ever. Oh, well, this is awkward. Mm.
1: <laughs> Taylor, pleasure as always. Thank you very much. Sir.
2: Uh, thank you to you gentlemen, but not to Mino Raiola.
1: Mino!